Welcome to the 457th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Laura Helmuth, Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American Back to COVID Calls for another visit. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Veteran AP producer, cameraman in Iraq dies of COVID 19. This was written by Zaina Karam and appeared in the Associated Press April 16th, 2021. Kodir Majid, who covered Iraq's numerous conflicts as a video producer and cameraman for the Associated Press for over 17 years, died in April 2021. He was 64. The cause of death was complications due to the coronavirus. Najid had been hospitalized for about three weeks, but his condition rapidly deteriorated in the last few days of his life, and he died in mid-April 2021. Najid joined the Associated Press in Baghdad in March of 2004, a year after the U.S.-led invasion that toppled Saddam Hussein in 2003. He went on to cover the breakdown in security and sectarian bloodbath that, pre that prevailed for years, as well as the U.S. occupation the rise of the Al-Qaeda terror network, and finally, the war against the Islamic State group. Killings, kidnappings, and bombings were an everyday occurrence, sometimes with multiple bombings on the same day. Through it all, Majid, known as Abu Amjad to family and friends, was a beloved colleague and a calming presence in the Baghdad Bureau. He was a dedicated journalist and a good friend to many, working quietly and behind the scenes to make sure accreditation and paperwork were secured, badges were collected, interviews were nailed, and stories were covered. Abu Amjad was a rare source of joy during difficult times working in Baghdad for the past 17 years. He will be remembered as kind and a dedicated professional, said Ahmed Sami, the AP's senior producer in Baghdad. Samya Kulab, the AP's correspondent in Baghdad, recalled Majid's dedication and commitment toward getting evasive ministers and officials to grant the AP interviews. He chased the transport ministry for months recently. He keeps saying next week, but don't worry, I will not stop calling. Such was his dedication to getting the story. I never forget, he would say. Kulab and other Baghdad colleagues also recalled his kindness. His wife would make these date biscuits, he shared with me on one occasion. I mentioned casually that I liked them, Kulab said. The next day, I had date biscuits to last a month. Majid was buried in Iraq's Shiite holy city of Najaf. He's survived by his wife and five children. The life of Kodir Majid, who died in April of 2021 of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. I'm really glad to bring Laura Helmuth back. Let me introduce her to you. Laura Helmuth is the Editor-in-Chief of Scientific American. She's previously been an editor for the Washington Post, National Geographic, Slate, Smithsonian, and Sciences News section. She serves on the boards of High Country News, Spectrum, and Sciline, and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Standing Committee on the Science of Science Communication. She's a past president of the National Association of Science Writers, and I'm really happy to get a chance to talk to her again. Laura Helmuth, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and thanks to everybody who's joining us. Let me start the way I usually do, get an update on where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling from Florida. I'm actually, I live in Maryland, but I'm visiting my dad who lives in Florida. So I'm in a, a storage room right now, um, upstairs, kind of out of the way. And in Florida, the uh, Surgeon General recently announced that they're going to, uh, they're planning to advise 
against vaccinating healthy children. Um, so that's what's happening in Florida. It's one of the states that has handled the pandemic the worst, um, that has just consistently had very bad public policy. And a lot of people have died who didn't need to die because of it. Is that a opinion that you have to go to the storage room in Florida to, <laughs> to express? I wonder about, you know, the sort of, I know you don't live there, but I do worry about the sort of nature of public discourse about science in Florida. Yeah, it's it's not good. And this is, um, you know, other things that are happening here, the governor, they, they just pushed through a what's being called the don't say gay law that restricts um, the ability of, of um, schools to discuss LGBTQ issues. Um, it's not uh, it, it's not a place that welcomes evidence-based policies necessarily. So it's very frustrating having family here. Uh, fortunately, my dad and stepmom are very you know pro-science, been very cautious about the pandemic. and um, but it's you know, it's hard being in a in a place where the leadership is is not interested in public health and not interested in making the best you know health-based decisions. And this is I didn't think we were going to talk about this, but I'm glad yes, you raised it because I mean, this is Florida. This is a major state. How many universities are in Florida? How many major medical centers, scientific research centers, NASA facilities, on and on and on and on. And then to have a sort of, not just like science skeptical, but an anti-science uh, wing of one of the major political parties in America running the state. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to lapse into easy partisanship, but I do. I worry about that at lots of different levels. What do you think can be done about that? Oh, it's really, I mean, yeah, at one level, the, the, the problem, one of the many problems is that some politicians, especially at the state level, are politicizing the pandemic to make themselves, you know, look tough. And um, I mean, the, the, you know, the same governor, Ron DeSantis, he, he was at an event recently and there were some college students behind him who were masked and he yelled at them and said, take off your masks. I mean, he's a bully, right? He's, I mean, and that's that's one of the problems is that we've gotten to a situation where um, a certain type of politician has, it thinks at least that being a bully is a winning attitude, is a, is a winning way to present yourself to voters and to, you know, deny that there's a problem and to um, be just belligerent and awful and, and you know, racist, sexist, and homophobic, um, you know, it, it's worked for them in some ways. So, what people can do is vote against them, you know, organize against them, support support people who are being bullied by them, um, you know, support gay kids, support gay families. So, uh, but it's hard. I mean, that's you know that you would think, and, and I think some of us maybe had this sort of fantasy that if some disaster happened, we would band together and people would discover their shared humanity and it would bring out the best in everybody. And it did, I mean, for a lot of people, it did bring out the best in them. People have been absolute heroes, sure. but there's just enough kind of anti-heroes in positions of power um, to make it really disappointing. How would you assess the the power of the scientific community to, to help in those kind of situations? I mean, I think before COVID, uh, when certain state legislatures a few years ago decided they, I think this was North Carolina, they weren't going to allow the use of climate change anymore right. as a as a term. And and the scientific community, you know, people who are stationed in other places, um, I think they tried to draw light on that. I think they tried to reach out and show some solidarity. I know everybody's exhausted right now, but I wonder, I mean, you know, what do scientists in New Jersey, Massachusetts, or for that matter, Germany or Singapore, do you see some efforts to show solidarity with scientists working in either public health or, you know, bench science in places like Florida and Texas? Yeah, I think you do see that. And and that's where a lot of the heroism has been and the sense of solidarity. Um, you know, the science is, you know, the most international endeavor in the history of humankind. And you do see scientists, you know, supporting one another, collaborating, sharing their data very quickly. Uh, checking one another, you know, working together on clinical trials and develop, you know, vaccine development and drug development and all that. So that's been great. I think that as far as changing public attitude, my favorite example, and I hope it, I, I hope it's a good lesson for for dealing with anti-vaccine problems and anti-climate you know, denial and, and all, is the the huge effort by scientists to um, push for the teaching of evolution and against the teaching of creationism. And you know, about 20 years ago, that was a really hot topic. And a lot of, I mean, it's still the case that some school boards try to 
you know, squeeze creationism into the curriculum and, and don't let, you know, and criticize teachers talking about evolution. But there was just a huge effort um, at, at very local, you know, national levels too, and in courts, but also just at school boards, at, at committee hearings, um, where scientists would show up and say, evolution explains all of life on earth. It's everything we know from, you know, from geology, paleontology, um, you know, all of biology. And it took a while um, but the, the National Center for Science Education uh, does regular polls of science of, of teachers. And, uh, it, you know, 20 years ago, it was the case that a, a very, a, just a small minority of teachers taught evolution as like the explanation for how life evolved. And now it's a majority. I think it went from one third to two thirds. So, you know, kind of a slow and steady progress. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, I, I don't think we're going to, to, to fix it and to, you know, give sudden epiphanies to the people who thinks that who think that there are these all these conspiracies around uh, vaccines and public health but chipping away at it it just being you know standing in solidarity being really clear with the messaging better with the messaging and and kind of debunking the conspiracies it's endless work but i think i think we got to win this one uh, i'm with you on that and and that last point of what you said that's endless work really important. I, I've had a, a physician, Gabriel Bosslet's been on a couple of times and he's in Indiana and you may have seen him in the news because he, there was, the Indiana house was putting up a bill around um, getting rid of vaccine mandates. I think that was the issue in businesses. So they were telling private businesses they couldn't mandate. And he went and testified and gave this really stirring sort of speech. And then you had to, you know, he was like, he wasn't the only voice, but he was kind of a lone voice. But it really mattered because the media picked that story up. And he, he said a lot of people reached out to him after. They were like, I just I couldn't do that. But thank you for for doing that. But it, I mean, it raises a, uh, this this problem about this sort of this kind of work for scientists. It's not something you do once and then the issue is settled. Right. They have to be prepared to go into public on a regular basis. I don't know. I don't know if that gets, I don't know if people get trained for doing that in science education these days, but it seems like endless, as you say. Yeah. And there are some nice training programs. Um, there's one called Compass. Uh, the Island Alda Center uh, does some training of, of scientists to, to communicate about science. And there are a lot of, a uh, lot of initiatives in universities, I think, have some training as well. Um, so it's definitely worth, you know, any scientists in the audience, if you, if, if you want to, uh, engage with the public more. Um, there are places that can help you do that better on TV, on the radio, uh, in your writing, um, in being interviewed by journalists. So uh, they, there is help out there. There's it's a certain set of skills, and you just you learn the skills and you get better at it. So I'm talking to editor in chief of Scientific American, Laura Helmuth, today. So um, last time we talked, December 9th, 2020, uh, 50 years in COVID time, I think. Um, there were at that time reported 287,671 deaths from COVID in the United States. And I guess I wanted to sort of ask you at a personal level, you know, since that time, like, how have you been? What kind of memories do you have of, of COVID since that sort of really bleak winter of 2020? Yeah, no, thank you for asking. And, you know, we're, we're a few weeks out from hitting 1 million in the United States and it's it's just a it's a horrifying a horrifying loss, um, and we you know we we will have all kinds of coverage you know, trying to help people comprehend it. And you know even at the it, just recently the Omicron variant is you know the fastest spreading type of virus in the history of the world. Um, so we've just lived through a lot. Um, as far as memories, yeah, you know, I'm at my dad's right now. So I think one of one of the best memories was when he and my stepmom finally got a vaccine um, you know, about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, and uh, just feeling so grateful and relieved and hopeful for the first time that I would actually you know be able to see him ever again. Um, and I have seen him. This is the second time I've third time I've seen him since then. So um, that's I think that's that's probably the biggest. You know, m m the best good memory for me, at least. I, I thank you for saying that and and sharing that. And I think people need to, um, everyone needs to write down that moment, that feeling that they had when their parents got vaccinated. And I can remember yeah. specifically where I was when my dad. And in those days, they were chasing vaccine around, they were calling every CVS <laughs> in the in fifty mile radius in Texas to try to find it, and they did get vaccinated. And I, 
that was one of the best days for me in this whole pandemic, for sure. Um, let's talk about science a little bit. Lots of things to get to. Um, and But the first thing I wanted to ask you about is the mRNA vaccine is, as a story and, and how you've thought about covering it, because it's the history of it, it's it's been portrayed as sort of like this is just about COVID. It has a it has a prehistory. It's it's hard, I think, to explain all the different parts of it, maybe to people. How have you approached it? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's it's astonishing that I mean, the fact that these vaccines are so effective and were created you know, so quickly. But like you say, there was a backstory. I, I was just at a conference and heard Robert Langer talking about you know what a process it was to get this concept, you know, accepted by other scientists and um, patented and to, you know, to, to start off the, uh, the, the long series of, of basic science uh, studies that it, that it took to, you know, before you could get um, any of this into human trials. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been amazing. And I, and I think it, you know, this obviously it's, it's saving people's lives right this minute, but it's also a proof of concept for all kinds of other vaccines, drug delivery. And uh, we've, so we've been covering both, you know, kind of the, how did it get here? How does it work? What does it do to the, your immune system? How does it, you know, harness your immune system? And then what is the future? You know, now that we've shown that these things are, are really pretty straightforward to make and very effective, like what, you know, what's next? What, what new problems can they potentially solve? What can I get you to say just a little bit more about that? I mean, what, what is over the horizon for mRNA technology? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the big killers, um, you know, heart disease and cancer, um, I'm not sure exactly what the, what the heart disease potential would be, but, uh, but for cancer, there are a lot of really creative ideas now um, of, you know, what, what are some completely new approaches to stopping various, and, you know, when you say cancer, it's like one disease, but every cancer is different. Even right. if it's the same organ, it can be different mutations and different mechanisms. And so, um, you know, the, the fact that this is such a versatile um, delivery system means that, you know, perhaps there are ways to, to be a little bit more targeted, to, to be creative, to, to fight, you know, fight tumors and, and metastases in new ways. So I think that'll, you know, after a pandemic, I think that'll be the biggest potential um, for, for more life-saving effects of mRNA. We started our conversation talking about uh, anti-science politics, and, and I wanted to sort of hear a little bit more of your thinking about the, the way the anti-vaccine uh, movement has coalesced around COVID-19 vaccines. And, and I mean, uh, there's vaccine skepticism, which is, which is one issue, but then there's also this sort of dug-in uh, industry, I think, of uh, of anti-vaccination. How have you made sense of the relationship between those two? Have you been surprised at all with, with the robustness of the anti-vax movement at this time, or did you see that coming? Yeah, unfortunately. And you use the word industry, which is the exact right term to use. I mean, the, the people who are pushing the anti-vaccine mythology um, a lot of them are making money off of it, or they, you know, have a lot of money and, and are and are pushing what looks like a grassroots, you know, public concern about science, but it's it's very much directed um, by a few kind of bad players who are manipulating social media, um, you know, spreading lies very effectively and and spreading misinformation that's you know emotional and catchy and memorable and and sounds kind of science ish and it's just made up. Um, so I've been covering the anti-vaccine movement for a long time. And as soon as this pandemic started, you, know, you saw almost right away, there was, there was just a huge deluge of misinformation from, you know, from the beginning, from the very first, uh, you know, the first reports out of China before it even got outside of China. And um, you saw people pushing, you know, trying to sell vitamin C um, and in selling all kinds of like quack treatments to make money off of people's legitimate fears about this, this new pandemic. And, um, and then the, the anti-vaccine people, you know, they, they weaponized, weaponized the fear and confusion and uncertainty. And, and, and with one thing they're really good at, which is so frustrating for people who, you know, care about science or know about science is they've really weaponized the fact that science is iterative and ideally self-correcting and it's a process. And so they use like science's transparency and willingness to ask questions and demand evidence 
they sort of use that that whole culture of science against it um, to to you know to raise doubts. And you know we've seen this with climate change, we've seen it with evolution, with with smoking and lung cancer. So it's a it's it's kind of a, a predictable playbook. But every time it happens, it's just so frustrating to see it play out. You you, you try to stop it, but they're so good at what they do. That's, you know, I think I'm probably not the only person who had a family member send them a peer reviewed study showing that the vaccine caused, you know, all kinds of of terrible things. And 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 I wonder, I want to ask you about this. I mean, is this just a structural thing about the way science works, the way that we demand reproducibility and peer review and that um, the nature of it is around uh, inquiry? And and trying to marshal evidence and people being wrong mostly, yeah. You know, I, I don't know how you get past that. I don't know how you communicate yeah. that. I've talked to so many guests about this in public health space and in biology and other allied sciences related to COVID. Every science, and I just don't see how I don't see a way out of it unless you make a sort of a science bureau that just only communicates when the facts are known, and even then, how. Yeah, it's it's a huge challenge. And so from the journalism point of view, the way we try to fight that is to explain the process, to kind of humanize the process and show, you know, here's the question, here's how you try to answer it, here's the first answer, here's, you know, the the improvement in understanding. And we've um we have some signals that we're trying to, to get across, like in in even in especially in headlines, um, where one of the the frames we use, one of the kind of formulas for a headline is um, you know, is, is vaccination safe during pregnancy? Here's what we know so far. You know, is the coronavirus airborne? Here's what we know so far. And the, what that does is, is kind of give, give readers a promise that we're going to tell you the most up-to-date information, but it also implies that not everything is known, that, you know, we'll know more later, but there are things, there are some things that aren't known. Because I think, you know, one of the most effective ways that the you know, kind of anti-science conspiracy theorists, one of their one of their kind of best weapons is when people have a question that they can't find an answer for. And that's when they go down rabbit holes and find, you know, all this, you know, conspiracies upon lies, upon disinformation. And so just telling people, look, we don't know the answer to this yet. People are working on it. We hope to know the answer. We'll let you know as soon as there is an answer, you know, that ideally then people will kind of wait and not not get frustrated that something isn't known and look for kind of false certainty. One of the things I always liked about uh, your work is your attention to the social sciences and the relationship mm-hmm. between natural and physical sciences and social sciences. It's been said, I think even Francis Collins, I think even said it. I think it was a little inelegantly said, but I, I took him, I gave him, you know, tried to give him credit for what he was saying. It's like, wow, we really need to know a lot more about people like society. <laughs> True. And there's a whole like a whole like you heard the cry go up in the land of social scientists like ah just read our Don't stuff. Think so. right but it's not as easy as that there's unlimited amount of work out there nobody has the time to do that and so I wanted to bring this question back to you because you know just we were talking about vaccines and the sort of public understanding of how scientific uncertainty gets worked out and how people's beliefs and the culture that they belong to will condition what they will allow as evidence or not. It's very complicated. Have you noticed much with COVID that has has surprised you or changed or specific cases of that that give you some kind of vision of how things might be evolving as we push through this, this pandemic? Oh, yeah. Good question. And I mean, absolutely. Social science has been so important. And and it's interesting because you see the different behaviors you're just traveling around the United States, certainly traveling around the world. You know, the countries that um, that didn't have politicians politicize it or didn't um, didn't try to depict masks as some sort of, you know, emasculizing, em- emasculating, um, you know, weakness. But, you know, but presented masks as a way to protect other people rather than, you know, show that you're scared. Um, all those, you know, just all these behaviors game being coded to mean things um, is, you know, has 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 determined the, the course of the pandemic. Um, and of course, you know, people people's willingness to uh, learn about vaccination, to to look for, you know, for, for good trustworthy sources and all that. Um, so, yeah, human behavior has been really interesting. I've been thinking a lot lately about Ebola and, you know, mm-hmm. when the when the, the, you know, the worst Ebola outbreak happened in West Africa, um, anthropologists 
said from the beginning, look, you need to have anthropologists be part of the global public health response um, because you can't just tell people, you know, everything you know about burying your dead is wrong and will kill you. I mean, you right. you need to be in culturally sensitive because you know, the the message is really difficult that um, you know death and burial practices are helping spread this disease, um, and you know eventually the social scientists were were consulted and and that really changed the course of the Ebola outbreak. But you see the same thing here. Um, you know, our death and burial practices, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, funerals were the biggest super spreading events. And so you'd have somebody die of COVID, there'd be a funeral where everybody else would catch COVID and then there'd be more funerals. And um, but it's really hard to get people not to embrace um, in their in their worst moments. So, um, yeah, it's you know, we, it's sometimes easier to easier to see for, you know, from an American perspective. Oh, over there in West Africa, they needed to you know be culturally sensitive but it's it's the same thing here and anywhere in the world you uh you know it's 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 hard to talk to people when they're terrified and confused and that's something social scientists uh, you know i hope will you have gotten better at and have and i think that um the public health establishment in general is 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 even more sensitive to to the to the behavioral scientists point of view and, and expertise can we push that point, do you think? I mean, how can we sort of demand that there's greater interaction among social scientists and physical scientists and public health experts? Is it, does it come through sort of different rubrics of funding? Does it actually come through journalism and, and science writers actually saying, ah, yeah, you want to tell the story, we've got to tell it in this way? I wonder how we make progress on that. I think we got all the evidence we need. I just don't know how to move it forward. That's a really good question. I mean, that, that, and that's definitely something we're trying to do in journalism. At, at Scientific American specifically, we've been publishing a lot more social science, not just about um, the pandemic, but in general to help people, you know, understand their world and the evidence about uh, behavior and society and things like systemic racism. Um, so we're we're trying to to you know kind of elevate and amplify the relevant research. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, funding for sure, hiring. I mean. Uh, what, there's a saying that um, personnel is policy. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, public health uh, organizations, public health uh, departments at every you know level, you know, local, state, city, um, they need to hire up massively. Um, but they should definitely be hiring social scientists as as part of as part of an expansion to prepare for the next pandemic and and the continuing uh, devastation from this one. So last time we talked, we talked about science writing, and I want to sort of return to that topic. Um, I I tend to think that you're going to see a whole generation of science writers, just like I think we're going to see a whole generation of, of new public health experts. Not everybody has been turned off by this. I think young people see this moment for what it is, it a transformative moment. And, and I guess across newsrooms and news organizations like yours around the, the world, everybody became a COVID reporter. <laughs> Really yeah, I mean, it's been it's been fascinating to see and you know, not just among journalists, but uh, in, in the world that people have just this whole new vocabulary and, and conceptual understanding of of how viruses work and how the immune system works and and vaccines and everything else. So I think that's I hope that this greater knowledge, I mean, you know, the, the thing that's most noticeable sometimes is the misinformation, the disinformation, the conspiracies. But oh, I think the population in general is much more sophisticated in understanding disease um, mm. than they were two years ago around the world. And I'm hoping that that, you know, the, the more you learn about something, the more interesting it is. Um, like when you start following a new sport, at first it just seems like, you know, what do these rules mean? And why was that a good play? I don't even understand what the point of that. Where's the ball supposed to go? And then after you watch a few games, you start to get into it and really grasp the nuance and see the excitement and really appreciate it. 
And I'm hoping that we have like a new generation of, you know, science sport fans who are, um, you know, just going to do even more with it. And, and, and readers and audiences, I hope, will, will continue to respond to, to this kind of coverage because there's so much else happening. And, um, you know, with HIV, with malaria, it's been, it's been a big couple of years. And it's, um, you know, I, I hope that, that all these other diseases get their attention as well. The countervailing pressures, though, are, are real, I guess. I mean, you know, sort of the um, industry pressures on news organizations and consolidation of media. You know, I always, particularly following disasters, you know, I really see the impact of the loss of local media and independent media in disaster. When, you know, there's a, a flood in southeast Texas, they have to send a reporter from Houston, you know, 100 miles up to cover that that story. And the same has been true with COVID. COVID has been everywhere. And but it's, I think it has really shown this problem that we have of the uh, decline of the, maybe it's not, I don't know if it's a decline in absolute numbers of journalists or just the, the rise of freelance. So I don't know, you know, from your position where you are in this major, you know, magazine about science in America, how does it look to you? I mean, is the industry going to change through this? Because there's been a lot of science reporting and this time and people have tuned in for it. Yeah, they have. Um, but you're absolutely right. There is a decline in the absolute number of journalists and especially the local you know, local places are, are so underserved. And there are some you know, foundations that are trying to help either support local, you know, local journalism directly or um, help local journalists who remain to, to do a better job covering science and health and you know, support their reporting and provide resources and trainings and things like that. Um, so there, you know, People are trying, um, but we've also seen that uh, that that traffic you know, tra traffic is our data, and um, you know people are paying less attention than they did at the peak of the pandemic. I, th I think we're plateauing at a, at a higher level, um, but understandably, people are are tired of following the news too. Uh, so you know, it's 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 hard to get people's attention, and in a way, the news and especially science news, you know, we're in competition from sports from movies from tv from games everything so it's it's um it's really hard to uh compete for people's attention and and, and you know make them uh as want to come come to us as as often as they do to some some other things that are maybe a little bit more uh distracting or or you know trans not transforming but you know that, that kind of take them away from the world right let just remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Scientific American editor in chief Laura Helmuth today. So, what are the science stories that we missed? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll speak for myself. What are the science stories I've missed because all I follow is COVID? Yeah, well, it's been you know we've had a good year on Mars. Um, we've got the uh, Severance rover has been you know digging up samples of uh, the Martian rock. That's been fun. Um, they launched a helicopter on Mars. Um, so that's been good. There's been some progress on um, on HIV, some progress on the malaria vaccine. Uh, these are all great things. You know, and what's interesting is, is I think some of the most life saving and you know most consequential science um, tends to be. You know, this is another reason why it's hard to get people excited about it. It tends to be. Um, uh, iterative and uh, steady, like steady, slow progress. So if you look at death rates from cancer, they are much lower than they were. And they, they, um, and they every year they get, a, you know, every year the survival rate for cancer gets a little bit better uh, because of steady, constant progress with better diagnostics, better treatments, more targeted treatments, um, better aftercare. And uh, it's hard to get people excited about steady progress. Um, so that's that's one of our challenges. Hmm. How do you uh, not to ask you for all of your trade secrets, but how how do you approach that journalistically? And I think that's that I would see a similar problem in writing about disasters like climate change when they're slow and incremental. It's hard to find the lead. Yeah, that's right. And with climate change, um, we started calling it actually the climate emergency. Um, mm -hmm. So we're trying to trying to you know, keep refining our language you know, yeah, there's change. And sometimes we call it a climate crisis, but really it's an emergency. Like this is a, it's a disaster, you know, um, all about disasters and, and the challenges of getting people to, to prepare for what's coming because it is coming. 
and it, I mean, climate change, climate, the climate emergency is here, but there are, you know, specific consequences that we know are coming. And how can we be, how can we be ready? How can we uh, mitigate them? How can we minimize the the loss of life and property? Um, and, and that's like the, the big challenge of, of any kind of communication is to, to get people to pay attention to what really matters in time to do something about it. And, uh, and it's tricky because the kind of the, the formulas for, uh, for news coverage are all, you know, here's something that's really new uh, that just happened that's surprising that we never expected. And so when these things keep happening, that we're telling you they're going to happen and then they happen, um, it, it kind of, it, it doesn't really fit the formula. And so it's a little bit hard to, to you know, get to jump up and down about it and, and get people to pay attention. I don't know if you saw the film, Don't Look Up. You're probably too busy. Good. Did you see it? Yeah, it was really nice. What did, yeah, what did, what, I was wondering what you thought about that because it's, I mean, it's obviously it's a cartoon in many ways, but some of the points that it made, I mean, you know, this like, here's scientists saying, well, we've discovered something totally amazing. Also, it's going to wipe out all life on Earth. So let's take action. And, and the news media and public and the media and the, the politicians are like, well, how, how can we mine it? Like, can we, how can we, you know? <laughs> It was just really threw everything into really, I thought it was a pretty effective film, frankly. Yeah, I thought so too. And there were a lot of details that were very true to, to journalism. I mean, it was caricature, you know, it was cartoon, like you say. Um, but a lot of the details about uh, scientists, um, you know, jockeying for position and how their culture conflict, you know, they just the, like the failure to communicate, you know, the, the anthropological problems of scientists and politicians not talking to each other. And then in media, you know, the, the fact that the, the various outlets they went to were more concerned about competing with their, with the other outlets, um, rather right. than you know, literally the fate of the earth. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of, a lot of good lessons in that, in that movie. It was a little painful to watch. It was. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the, um, they make some fun of the status system. So these scientists who I think are from Michigan state, maybe, and they're in the White House and and the White House, you know, the chief of staff's like, we're can we get some Ivy League scientists in to does that happen? Oh boy. It sure seems like it. I mean, I, yeah. I have not been in rooms where that has happened. Um, you know, in we in journalism, I don't want to speak for all journalists. I think there I think that probably is a problem in in media also. Um at Scientific American, we were trying to to kind of fight that trend and to um, and to cover research that's being done, you know, really important, interesting research that's being done in, in that hasn't been overcovered because it's coming out of Harvard. Another thing I wanted to just circle back on on COVID um, is, and this comes back to this issue you were raising about keeping the public's attention and um, keeping the fascination with science alive. And I, I guess one of the ways to do that is to, to have it be a personal story, a sort of lives in science approach. And there've been some interesting, I mean, Tony Fauci is not, was not new um, on the public stage. A lot of people discovered him for the first time, or there's others and think of like Dr. Peter Hotez in, in Texas, and maybe you can think of others as well who have become, I mean, in some ways they've become targets of huge criticism from anti-science activists, but I think actually that has probably increased their standing overall among the public who cares about science who have been the 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 scientific breakout stars for you in terms of covid or does that is that the wrong way to approach this and are you moving past that kind of reporting oh that's interesting yeah i mean there is the the whole danger of the you know great man of science problem where you think that genius is, you know belongs to individuals working in isolation against the status quo. And that's not how it works at all. You know, all good science is done by um, huge teams working, you know, extending the knowledge that was produced by other teams and other members of the team. Um, that said, I think, you know, I spent a lot of time on Twitter and I feel like there have been some, some really good, uh, especially healthcare providers, doctors and nurses who have, have done a really effective job at um, using social media platforms to uh, to share the latest science, to answer questions, to humanize uh, what's happening, and to and to share what's happening in hospitals. Uh, so I think there 
there have been a lot. And in particularly, um, you know, some of the, the, the ones that I think have been most effective have been people of color um, and, and women. Uh, the, there's two sisters, their last name is Blackstock, who are fantastic. Um, Kazmichia Corbett was one of the um, one of the people who helped develop the vaccine. Uh, there's a, a nurse named Catherine Ivy who's written for us a few times. Who's I call her the Wilfred Owen of the COVID pandemic. And Wilfred Owen was the you know World War One poet. Uh, and and her poetry from the uh, you know, from the ICU, she's a nurse, uh, is 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 that that same sort of just haunting, harrowing, horrible, um, but but beautifully written. Um, so yeah, I think there there have been a lot of people who've sort of found their voice or who've had their voices found uh, during the pandemic, and I hope they continue to to you know have a big influence on the public discourse. The last time we talked. Um... Scientific American had done something it had never done before, which is it uh, weighed in to a presidential contest. What was the now with the the sort of some distance between that moment and and this moment? Um, what did you think of that decision? Now, what were the impacts of that decision? Yeah, that, so that's right. We're you know, our magazine is now 177 years old. And we'd never, uh, never endorsed a, a, a candidate before. We, we weighed in on on issues. Um, you know, we were against the H bomb, against the Star Wars missile defense system, a lot of other things. But the first time we'd said, "Okay, vote for this person," and um, yeah, I think looking back on it, it was absolutely the right decision. At that point, um, yeah, we I mean we knew Trump was bungling the response to COVID. In addition, in the 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 the, um, the endorsement we made was strictly based on science. It was if if you look at you know science based policies, uh, supporting science, the science workforce, science education, um, you know for all the you know anything related to, to health, science, technology, engineering, math, medicine, uh, Biden was the clear best choice. And I think you know it's it's been there have been a lot of mistakes. Everybody's trying to do their best. But I think overall. Uh, Biden has done a much better job um, addressing the pandemic than than Trump did in his his moments with it. When you think about different presidential administrations, where do you look? Um, you know, I'm sort of really curious because you know how science bureaucracies work. Which offices really matter and tell us something about the values of a president when it comes to science, and which ones maybe not as much? And I'm thinking here of everything from who the head of NOAA might be to the office, the OSTP, there's big science bureaucracy out there. And I'm always curious, you know, to, it's hard for me sometimes to know when certain people come in, what that actually is telling me about the imperatives of, of an administration and where their focus might really be. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, you certainly saw during the Obama administration, um, I, I, I lost track of how many um, you know, Nobel Prize winners were in science roles, and it did a great job. I mean, they, uh, you know, they they did a, a really nice job of of uh, of building up the workforce, making evidence based decisions, making good investments, you know, using their budget in smart ways. And I think Biden, um, you know, overall, I've been really happy with his 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 appointments. Um, you know, there's this, I think what I think probably one of the big disappointments has been the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They you know, they had a really tough time under the Trump administration and kind of hit this pandemic and, uh, you know, have, have been um, historically in general, you know, like most public health have been understaffed and uh, under supported. So I think they're they're sl slowly coming back. But I think if you look at the other, you know, them and, and all the other science agencies, they're definitely in much better shape under the Biden administration. Um, there's a little blip. The uh, his science advisor. Um, uh, was was just replaced um, after being uh, accused and, and found to be yeah. a bully and not not a good manager and and I and I hope that's where we're going is that we want people uh, in positions of leadership who understand the science and the importance of science and how to to use the federal government to support science and who are good leaders um, of people who are you know humane. Empathetic, who you know, ideally represent, you know, are 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 good allies or representatives of underrepresented groups, um, and I, you know, I'm hoping that that is increasingly something that really matters in terms of Biden's science picks. Do you think Scientific American will endorse a candidate again, or was 2020 a truly existential moment? 
<laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine. I mean, at this point, you know, I think it depends on who who runs next time. And, you know, we, we started this conversation talking about DeSantis in Florida and, you know, he has national ambitions. And, um, you know, I, I can't imagine not warning people about his history of anti-science behavior if it comes to that. So we're almost up on time in my discussion with Laura Helmuth today, but I wanted to just come back again to sort of news coverage in Scientific American um, with the with the pandemic. I think you've done a great job, okay. uh, and I applaud you and uh, and your staff for for you know what you've delivered. And um, you just it's just out now. There's a it's like a big COVID issue. And we were chatting a bit before we came on. And I, as a historian, I'm always, you know, when I look back in history, like those are the issues of, of magazines that if you follow long runs of them, those are the real meat and potatoes for historians. Because they're like, oh, this was a moment in which an editor said something. We're at a turning point here. This is a moment to say something about a critical issue, whatever it may be, nuclear weapons, or it could be the um, evolution controversy or whatever it is with the long history of Scientific American, and, and you have this issue, um, and, and I don't think you're saying with the issue COVID is over, but it is, a, um, you know, you have this long stream of stories, and then here's one where you say, okay, we're going to say a lot now yeah. about this. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to to run that issue and why at this moment and what you think it might tell us more generally about where we are with the pandemic? Yeah, uh, and I think you're exactly right. It, we really did decide, okay, we've had lots of individual stories about COVID, but we need to take a bigger look. And the, the premise of the, of the package is um, how COVID changed the world. And so we basically talked to people in, in every field we could think of um, to see how it changed um, rocket launches, how it changed you know, the scientific collaboration, uh, you know, vaccine development. Some of the, some things were obvious, like vaccine development, and others were not so much. Like how did it how did it change social justice movements, um, and uh, and and the climate emergency, the climate crisis. What what kind of impact did it have? So we, uh, you know, we thought this. It, it's so hard to get your head around what we've been through in the past two years. Um, and, you know, as as a disaster expert, I'm sure, you know, you knew that a pandemic was something that a lot of people were predicting, warning about it happened before it was going to happen again. But in a way, it didn't seem real. And then it happened. And here we are still in it, not out of it. And uh, it, it's just so hard to grasp the reality of, reality of it and, and what it's done and what it's changed. And so we thought, you know, with the two year, you know, two years after the, you know, the really hit the the United States, um, can we can we try to capture some of that while we can still remember the before times? Um, yeah. Uh, that's uh, yeah. Appreciate. I really appreciate that because I think it's a challenge in in the way we write about disasters more more generally, and the focus is almost always on short term events. And I mean, even last time we talked in December of 2020, there was a sort of a discourse, like we're getting to the vaccine now, this is almost over. There were already some sort of valedictories kind of in preparation for the end of the pandemic. And then Delta and Omicron had something different to say about that. But waiting until it's somehow over to say anything about it, I really like what you said a minute ago, because we, we've forgotten a lot already. I wonder, um, just, you know, sort of final final question on the on the way out. I'm going to ask you to make a pitch for science journalism here. Uh, and, you know, young people who are have been through this and been through high school or college, done it remotely every day. They've been this has been their life defined by this. Why should they follow in your footsteps and write about science as a career? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it's the most well. <laughs> The, the past few years have been very difficult. We're all quite tired. I mean, everybody's tired. Uh, science and health journals are very tired. Um, but it's uh, it's it's the, it's a very satisfying career to be in, in journalism in general because you're learning something new all the time. You're helping, you know, shine light on 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 the darkness and uh, and help people understand the world. But especially with with science reporting, science editing, science journalism. 
uh, any kind of science communication. Like it's literally your job to learn stuff and tell people about it. And that, that's a lot of fun. And you do, you learn something new every day. Um, I was in a meeting the other day and we had a story pitch about parasites and everybody on the call, and there were about 15 of us, we all had like our favorite parasite stories. And we were really excited about talking about parasites. Not all health and science journalists are that way. You don't have to love parasites to be in the business. Um, but if you want to learn more about like how the natural world works, how the universe works, how the body works, how behavior and societies work, um, being in journalism is a really good way to do it, to be, you know, to get paid to learn stuff and to and to talk to people who know a lot. And, and you know, it's your job to interview them and ask them questions and then they tell you things. So it's uh, it's it's a very high quality of life, aside from the long hours and the not super uh, great day. What's your favorite parasite? Oh, gosh. Um, uh Probably all the zombie makers. There's a, there's a bunch okay. of a bunch of parasites that that turn insects and in, that make insects behave in weird ways to yeah. spread the spread them. That's a, I can, that's a pitch meeting. That's a subculture that I want to be part of. That sounds amazing to be in that in that room. Wow. Um, well, we're out of time. Um, just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Although these days we're doing several. A day as we lead up to the two-year mark of COVID calls next next week on March 16th. I was really happy to get uh, you in for a second visit, Laura, to talk a little bit about the passage of time and uh, as this archive is going live. Um, I'm a fan, obviously, of your work and what you're doing in, at Scientific American, and keep it up. And thanks for making time. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this series, and thanks everybody for joining us. I will see you next time on COVID calls. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>